0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. And if you haven't yet, consider checking out the new, improved oldeststories.net website. There's a list of recommended readings, show notes for every episode, and a few ways to contact the show with questions, comments, or whatever else. Coomerby wants the throne of heaven, and today... He's going to pull out all the stops to secure the crown for his lineage, no matter how monstrous that lineage gets. Today, we look at the songs of Hadamu and Ulikumi, tales which carry Greek echoes in the tales of Typhon and Antaeus, respectively, though here the correspondence is a bit looser than it was between the Theogony and the Song of Kumerbi. Though we know that there were many, many tales of Coomerby and his attempts to win the throne, these two today appear to have been fairly important tales within the genre. Today, we will see character development that appears to wind down the otherwise endless cycle. The monsters will grow so large that it will be hard to top them, even by the overblown standards of myth. More importantly, we will see character development across the stories, most critically, Ea, finally growing tired of Kummerby's antics and reconsidering who he should be supporting. But also, we'll be seeing some character development in Shaushka, who is Tesheb's sister. Like the other tales, our first story today, the song of Hadamu, is fragmentary and begins in the middle of the action. Kumarbi has a plan but this plan must be conducted in absolute secrecy for it to have a chance of working. Kurby opens by speaking to his vizier, Mukesanu, and giving a message he's to relay to the god of the sea, whose name is unclear. In the Hittite fashion, the name of the god as it would be pronounced is not written down, and instead we're just given a title, and it's assumed that the reader will know who the tablet is talking about. In any case, the messenger travels under the ground to prevent the moon, sun, or gods of the dark earth from seeing him. Apparently, the sun and moon are notoriously gossipy. When he arrives at the sea god's palace, his message is short. "Kumarbi is calling you. The matter is urgent. Come promptly. Make sure you travel beneath the earth so that the sun, moon, and dark earth gods cannot see you. When the sea god heard this, he wasted no time in getting up and taking the journey, making the long passage without any stops for rest. When finally arriving at Kumerbi's place, he was treated spectacularly. He was given a chair and offered a footstool to put his feet up. He was lavished with food and wine. Meanwhile, Kummerby whispers to his vizier Mukisanu he must quickly go lock the door after checking outside to ensure that there were no eavesdroppers. The fragment ends here, and we miss the meat of the discussion between the two. When our story picks up, the sea god has been impressed by all of Kumarbi's flattery... ...and has agreed to a marriage proposal. He tells Kumarbi that in seven days, Kumarbi is to travel to the sea god's house... ...where he will receive a wife... The sea god's daughter, Sertapseruhi, a massive sea snake who is 50 miles long and a mile wide. The sea god assures the groom-to-be that he will enjoy all the pleasures of marital bliss with the 50-mile-long sea snake, and it will be like drinking sweet cream. Though the formalities of marriage are entered into, and both parties appear to be quite happy with the arrangement, and with the lavish wedding accompanied by musical instruments, it's difficult to assume that Coomerby feels any sort of either lust or love for a miles-long sea snake. But like most important marriages of the Bronze Age, this was first and foremost a political transaction. We are thankfully spared the scenes of lovemaking and birth, for Kumerbi impregnates Sir Suruhi, and eventually she gives birth to the sea monster, Hadamu. None of the surviving fragments clearly describe Hadamu, but given his power and his parentage, we can easily imagine pretty much any terrifying deep-sea creature we care to think of early in its childhood we have a fragmentary description of how swimming around the ocean hadamu would eat absolutely anything big things and small things and nothing it encountered could resist being eaten when our next fragment opens Shaushka is distressed she's arrived at the palace of the gods and naturally she's offered a chair to sit in but this she refuses She's offered food, but she's too distressed to eat. She's offered a drink, but she's too distressed for a drink. This is a common trope in Hurrian literature, a messenger with a message so urgent that he or she refuses all hospitality, insisting that the message must be delivered straight away. And so they ask her, what's the news? And Shavushka begins to tell of a horrifying threat from beneath the sea. Sadly, here too our descriptions of Hadamu are cut off, and so while we can tell that it must be some particularly great menace, we're lacking in specifics. As she speaks of the horrible devastation that Hadamu has wrought in the world, her tears flow like rivers. When this is done, the assembled gods are aghast. Ea, god of wisdom, is the one everyone looks to for words at times like these. And with great godly wrath, he provides them. Turning to Kumarbi, he says, Why are you destroying humanity? They will not give sacrifices to the gods if they're all dead. They'll no longer burn incense cedar for you. If you destroy humanity, they'll no longer worship any gods. No one will offer brier or bread to you. Even Teshub, the heroic king, will be forced to grasp the plow. Even your sister Shaushka and Teshub's wife Habat will be forced to grind the millstone. What is your problem, Kumarbi? Why are you trying to harm mankind? Does not the mortal take his green heap and promptly offer it to you? Does he not make offerings to you, Kumerbi, father of the gods, with joy in his heart as he stands amidst your splendor in the temple? Do they not also offer to Teshub and to me, Ea, as well? But no, Kumerbi, you are putting wisdom behind ambition and bringing forth the blood and tears of all mankind for your foolishness. An interesting rant from an interesting god. For the most part, it's pretty self-explanatory. Clearly, Kumarbi's attempt at dethroning Teshub has done untold damage to the mortal realm, and threatens a disaster of apocalyptic proportions. But, perhaps uniquely among the Kumarbi texts that we still have, Teshub has not actually been overthrown in this tale. Rather, The destruction that Kumarbi's constant rebellions has wrought is finally irritating the other gods, and most critically, the god Ea, who, in these Hurrian myths, appears as a wise counselor and kingmaker, a god who holds all the power, but few of the titles that go along with it. But however wise Ea is, Kumarbi is having none of it, and spits right back, how could you talk to me like this in front of everyone? My rage is boiling over. Why would you strike me, Aya? How can you defend humanity like this when my divine and royal prerogatives are so much more important? You are foremost among the gods, but consider these insignificant humans to be more important than my kingship. Kummerby is letting it all out now, speaking directly from his mind. The rightful king is me, Kumarbi. Son of Alalu, but you have brought me down to the god Amizadu. What the story with Amizadu is, we aren't certain. He's probably a native Syrian agriculture god, but we don't know much more about early Syrian myths. But what is for certain is that Kumarbi was mad as hell and wasn't going to take it anymore. And there, in the midst of the council of the gods, Kumerbi summons up Hadamu to be his surrogate in battle against Tesheb. The heroic Tesheb naturally rises to the challenge. The battle between the two is so fierce that the clay tablet describing it is shattered and left us only with fragments. The most interesting fragment appears to be a portion narrated in first person, a report by someone who had seen the fight. Here, it seems that both Teshub and his sister Shaushka, who, in Hurrian myth, is a local goddess, but one who has been heavily entwined with the Mesopotamian Ishtar. She battled the Hidamu creature, and the conflict was intense. Teshub, god of storms, brought lightning down in tremendous quantities. Either Teshub or the Hadamu brought an intense driving rain to the fight, and with the water pouring so violently, bystanders were swept away, and even the battling gods appeared to have difficulty resisting the current. Whoever is reporting this battle was apparently pulled at the knees by the current and swept away, spinning and dizzy like a potter's wheel, and the reporter's entire family was pulled out of the fight. No one knows just how the fight ended, but it appears to have been a draw, where both sides were forced to pull back, Hidamu returning to the deep ocean. In the aftermath, Teshub says to Shaushka that they and Hidamu will have to face each other again for a decisive battle. If I win, Teshub says, the world will be right again. But if Hidamu is allowed to run unopposed, it'll be a disaster for the world and this disaster will be my own fault for lacking the strength to stop him. But there's a problem, and Shaushka knows it. Hadamu can retreat to the deep ocean whenever he wants, and Teshub cannot follow. And so, she goes to her bathhouse and summons her most lovely and talented assistant goddesses, Picking two and handing each a musical instrument, the three women go to the edge of the sea and begin to sing, play, and gyrate sensually. The sound of the goddesses playing travels through the waters of the ocean. The sight of the beautiful Shaushka dancing can be seen through the clear waters. And Hadamu raises his head above the water. Tempted, right as Shaushka begins to undress, performing a striptease. Who are you, Hadamu asks, that rather than fearing me and my destruction, you present yourself in so beguiling a fashion? The two then have a lengthy discussion in which Hadamu is increasingly seduced by the beautiful Shaushka. At a certain point, Hadamu's mother, Sertab Suruhi, even shows up, likely to warn her son of the dangers of temptresses, but she's overridden by the young monster's raging hormones. In some fragments, Hidamu sees interested. <clears throat> in some fragments, Hadamu seems interested in eating Shaushka, though in precisely what sense this is meant is unclear. In the end, he’s completely enraptured by the goddess of love and passion, and she hits him with a straight-up love potion, which puts him to sleep. The love potion appears to have had quite a lot of alcohol, which probably explains Hadamu’s drowsiness. As he sleeps, Shaushka continues to whisper in Hadamu's ear, and he comes further and further out from the water. Finally, he stirs, and in dreamlike haze pounces on the still-naked Shaushka, having intercourse with her and getting her pregnant. But in this moment of supreme vulnerability, someone slices open Hadamu's belly, and out come the remains of everything he's eaten. Here, at the end of what we have in this tale... It seems that the death toll was, in fact, horrifying. The remains of 130 cities come out of one hole in his stomach. Then they cut again, and another 70 cities come pouring out. This sea monster has eaten 200 cities in his reign of terror, and out like flowing mountains come a massive pile of severed heads. The rest of the story, indeed the whole last portion of it, is very badly broken and hard to read but it seems that the day has been saved and Hadamu has been destroyed, at least in part through Shaushka's seduction of the monster. But Kumarbi still isn't dismayed. He's lost favor with pretty much everyone and nearly destroyed the world in his quest for kingship. And he has one more plot left as we move from the Song of Hadamu to the Song of Alikumi. This last one is the most complete and readable of all the Qumrbi Cycle songs, and gives us a strong sense that much is missing even from our reconstructions of the other tales. But we work with what we have. We begin again with Kumerbi, known as the father of all the gods, forming yet another clever plan he's going to cause an evil day to dawn by creating yet another hostile man to send against the storm god Teshub. Qumrbi entertains these wise thoughts in his mind and aligns them like beads on a string, presumably the Hurrian idiomatic way of saying he organizes his thoughts. Once Qumrbi has formed this clever plan in his mind, he promptly arose from his chair, In his hand, he took his staff, and on his feet, like winged sandals, he puts the winds allowing him to fly, and he leaves his sacred city of Urkesh for a place called Cold Spring. It seems that in the place called Cold Spring, there was a massive rock, three miles wide and one and a half miles long. Kummerby's mind raced with excitement at what he was about to do. Now, there's no way to say this delicately, but Kummerby took his manhood and thrust it into this rock, engaging in very little intercourse with a mountain. After one round, he would lay back, recover, and then turn back again to hump the hole in the rock where his seed was deposited. The god and the large rock slept together 15 times, just to make sure that the rock got pregnant. Yep, That is the genius plan Kummerby has come up with. He bangs a large rock. A long section after this is lost, and somewhere it seems Kummerby has offended the sea god, possibly by cheating on his daughter with a large mountain. We have an extensive scene which, despite its length, tells us very little about what's happening, where Kummerby visits the sea god and reaches some sort of agreement with him. Eventually, the sea god is happy. A bit later, Kumarbi is being handed his newborn son, who's literally just a rock, by the fate goddesses and the mother goddess. Kumarbi is sitting there wondering what the child's name should be, and decides to pick the least subtle name possible, announcing that his new son would be named Ulikumi, which literally means the destroyer of the town of Kamiya. Kamea being the main holy city of Teshub, who Kumerbi hoped Ulikumi would be slaying. Kumerbi gives a benediction over his beloved rock lump, saying, "'Let him go to heaven for kingship. Let him suppress the fine city of Kamea. Let him strike Teshub, Let him chop him up like fine chaff. Let him grind him underfoot like an ant.'" Let him snap off Tasmisu like a brittle reed. Let him scatter all the gods down from the sky like birds. Let him smash them like empty pottery bowls. Yes, nothing subtle about Kummerby's intention here at all. And remember, he's saying this before a decent number of important other gods and goddesses. Anyway, when he had said these things, Kummerby had a new problem. Where was he going to raise this child? He needed to be kept safe and hidden for long enough that the child would grow. Otherwise, Teshub and the other gods would naturally kill him while he was still an infant. Kummerby wasn't going to raise the child himself. That would be ridiculous. Kummerby preferred being an absentee sort of father, one who abandons his children and then shows up 20 years later to demand that they do whatever he wants. One assumes Kummerby never owned a number one dad mug. Kumerbi calls his messenger Impuluri, and Impuluri goes to fetch some goddesses called the Asira deities. Neither of these are important on their own, and you don't need to remember them. But Kumerbi's messenger tells the Isira deities Come, the father of the gods is calling you. I'm not going to tell you what it's about. Just come when you're called. And these deities obey promptly. Kumerbi then asks them to go secretly to put the young Ulikumi. On the shoulder of a fellow named Ubaluri. Now, Ubaluri is a bit like the Greek figure of Atlas, a giant who holds up the sky. When Ulikumi is placed on Ubaluri's shoulder, he begins to grow and grow fast, a few meters every day, a hundred meters in a month. Soon Enlil, the Mesopotamian king of gods, though in this story he's only an ancient and venerable lord of wind, spots this child. Immediately, he thinks to himself that this must be another of Kummerby's plots to bring down Teshub, and he shakes his head in disgust, wondering just how much Kummerby is willing to destroy this time for his mad schemes. But, for some unclear reason, seriously, there aren't even broken parts of the text here, it just goes unstated, Enlil doesn't seem to do anything to stop this, or to let anyone know, despite him seeing it, and despite him disapproving of it, and despite him being a sky-related god, and so he should presumably be on Tesheb's side. But whatever, that's how it goes sometimes. And so, after 15 days of standing on Ubuluri's shoulder, Ulikumi has grown to be 50 meters tall. He is a solid lump of basalt rock, standing straight and proud and seemingly nothing that hits it can hurt it. Ubaluri and Ulikumi are both standing in the ocean, it seems, or maybe way out in the Mediterranean Sea. But as Ulikumi grows, the water level is relatively lower on his body. First his waist, then he gets taller and it's down to his knees, then he gets taller and it's down to his feet. And soon enough, the sun god looks down and spots this anomaly on his daily trip across the sky— wonders what this new god is. That evening, as he approached the sea most closely in the west, he took a real good look at Ulikumi and became enraged. Though it was nearly sunset, the sun god changed his course in the heavens and went directly to Teshub's house. Tashmisu saw the sun god approaching and knew right away that there was trouble. The matter must be important— There must be some severe struggle or a dire battle, or heaven must be in an uproar with famine and death throughout the land. And so, he naturally got some food and drink ready for the coming dignitary. But when the sun god arrived, he refused all hospitality. Again, the very image of a messenger with a message too urgent for politeness. At first, Teshem is acting obtuse, feeling offended that his hospitality was refused. But soon the sun god breaks in and tells him the bad news, that a great god made of stone is growing way out in the ocean. But showing that he always possessed dignity and true nobility, he suppressed his anger and said to the sun god, now that your message is delivered, would you care to partake of my hospitality? To which the sun god agreed before returning to his duties in the sky. Meanwhile, Tesheb considered his options, but decided that an immediate strike in full force was the best plan of action, grabbing his brother Tasmisu and sister Shaushka and gearing up all three of them for war. Departing from their shrines, all three looked formidable, holding hands in solidarity. They made their way up to the top of Mount Hazi, where Tesheb looked over the ocean to where the basalt god could be seen in the distance. But as soon as he saw Ulekumi, Teshub's entire demeanor changed. He fell to the ground, his knees weak from fear, and tears flowed in his eyes like stinging rivers. He bawled in fear there atop the mountain, unable to even look at the enemy from half a world away. The sheer terrifying power radiating from Ulikumi, even at this distance completely unmanned and defeated the divine king without a shot being fired. Shaushka tried to console him, but the three of them retreated from the mountaintop and went their separate ways to consider the problem. In the city of Nineveh, Shaushka knew that her womanly charms were a strength that could often outmatch the physical strength of men. And indeed, in the last story, we saw her winning the day through seduction. And so, she summoned the attendant goddesses and equipped them with musical instruments once again. Then she went to the shores of the ocean, dressed in nothing but a seashell and a pebble, and tried the trick that had worked on Hadamu. For hours, she danced, gyrated, and sang on the beach, with her exquisitely talented goddesses accompanying her but she saw no movement out in the distance. Finally, a god whose name is unreadable arose from the sea with a great wave, and he said, This is a lovely show you're putting on, but you know he can't see you. Ulikumi is a basalt rock. He literally cannot see. He literally cannot hear. And even if he could, rocks don't get horny. This revelation completely killed the mood and Shaushka extinguished the incense candles she had lit, put some clothes on, and everyone went home defeated. After this, a section is lost, but when it opens, Teshub has regained his courage. Perhaps he's optimistic that since his enemy, literally a motionless rock that is deaf and blind, possesses a weakness, then perhaps it can be defeated. He's calling his brother Tasmasu and giving him instructions for preparing Teshub's chariot. Both the bulls that will pull it need to be pampered a bit, the armor's scales need to be installed onto the chariot and the animals, the axle needs to be inspected, and so forth. Meanwhile, Teshub calls forth a storm so mighty that it's out smashing rocks a mile away. Finally, Teshub's chariot lights out over the open ocean, charging on the surface of the water. Jesus may have walked on water, but Teshub, the Hurrian storm god, charged his divine chariot on the surface of the water. At 500 meters from his enemy, seeing the wind beating at the great and growing basalt monster, he ordered his bulls to charge in earnest. The battle, as is depressingly common, is lost to us with the tablet breaking shortly after Teshub held his weapons at the ready and began his charge. However, Teshub is unable to do anything at all to the monster, beating on it with weapons and storms, yet nothing he does can even dent Ulikumi's solid form. Seeing Teshub fall upon the battlefield, a warrior god named Astabi sprang into action. Pulling together an impromptu army of 70 war gods, each mounted upon chariots, they zoomed across the ocean to reinforce the divine king. Seventy gods grabbed Ulikumi, but even altogether they were unable to even move him. And when Ulikumi struck back, Astabi and his 70 divine warriors were thrown into the ocean. Everyone fled, and by the time they looked back, Uli had grown so tall that he was now 9,000 miles tall and 9,000 miles wide. It had, in fact, grown so large that it now stood at the gates of the city of Kamiya, Teshem's holy city, without having taken a single step off of Ubaluri's shoulder. The city finds itself besieged, and no word can get in or out. Here, Teshub's wife, Habat, begins to worry, since she can no longer hear from her husband's temple, and sends a messenger to go check on the city. The messenger comes back, reporting that Kamiya is in grave peril, and so Lady Habat follows her messenger to Kamiya, fearing that Teshub has been killed. They have some sort of peril, but make it into the city where Teshub and Tasmisu are hard at work trying to find some way to defeat Ulikumi before the city really is destroyed. Teshub has a few ideas he wants to try, but Tasmisu is concerned that if they leave from the throne, there will be no king in heaven. Instead, he suggests they should go to Ea. Even though he isn't technically on our side, perhaps if we show him elaborate obsequiousness, he will condescend to help us in our fight. And so they went to Apzua, the Hurrian home of Ea, and before the front door, they each bowed five times. Then before the inner door, they each bowed five times. Then before Ea himself, they each bowed fifteen times. You may recall from the tale of Hadamu that Ea is already growing disenchanted with Kumerbi's faction, and this elaborate respect shown by Tesheb appears to help sway him more fully to Tesheb's side. Ea still has harsh words for Tesheb and his previous disrespect, and for his part in this running feud, but he eventually allows them to come consult the Great Tablets of Knowledge— wherein they hope to find a weakness of Ulikumi. And sure enough, they read of a copper cutting tool, the item which separated heaven from earth in the very earliest days. And a plan immediately comes to mind. Eya goes to Enlil and explains the situation to him, reporting on how Ulikumi has grown 9,000 miles high and must be stopped immediately. If Enlil had any reaction... We have lost it in the tablet damage. Ea next goes to Ubaluri, the giant who is holding up Ulikumi. He and Ea exchange polite, formal greetings, and Ea asks Ubaluri if he's aware that a 9,000-mile-high stone god of death is perched upon his right shoulder. Ubaluri replies that it's not really in his nature to notice things, just in general. I could sympathize with that, but he has started to wonder about an ache developing on his shoulder, that he didn't really until now know what the cause was. Eya assured Ubaluri that the issue would be handled soon. Neither of these interactions really advance the plot but take a look at how nice it is to go around being polite to people and letting everyone know what's going on before rushing to action and violence, like kumarbi and Teshub have been doing. Ea really is a great role model for all the Near Eastern cultures, except for the tale where he raped six generations of his own daughters, which was pretty horrifying but that was already discussed back in episode 14 if you are interested in learning the full story of my favorite god. Next, Ea goes up to the primeval gods, and with all due politeness, he asks them to open up the storehouses of their grandfathers, where the really keen treasures are all kept. He convinces them to lend him the copper cutting tool, and then the tablet breaks again. When we pick up, Ea is speaking to Teshub and Tasmasu on the eve of battle. He's dressing them down for all their failings up to this point. He's terribly upset, for whenever he looks at Teshub, all he can see is how many people have died over his stupid power struggle. But still, he's willing to help Teshub now, and sends Teshub out to fight Ulikumi one more time. Tasmasu clapped three times to summon all the gods to the assembly, and the assembled gods begin to bellow like cattle at the massive stone monster, who can neither see nor hear, but it's good that they're participating. Teshub then leapt into his chariot and with a roar like thunder plowed into the sea. They battled, but this time, Willikumi spoke calmly to Teshub, while Teshub flailed impotently at him. He was very polite, this massive stone murderer, but very firm. He gave Teshub credit for finally getting Ea on his side, since that will be the keystone of any divine reign. But still, Ulikumi had made up his mind to destroy the city of Kamiya, to take the throne of heaven, to scatter all the gods down from the sky, just like dear old dad wanted. Ulikumi bid Tesheb to stand like a man in this final hour and fight honorably. Then, after a bit more discussion, Eya, who had snuck around back while Ulikumi was distracted, used the copper cutting tool that had once severed heaven from earth to cut Ulikumi off of Ubaluri's shoulder. Suddenly, The once-invincible, ever-growing God has lost his source of strength, and he is vulnerable again. And the assembled army of gods does not hesitate to finally strike down the greatest of enemies they had ever faced. Now that Teshub has many victories under his belt, the approval of the general mass of gods, the more direct approval of Ea, god of wisdom, his kingship in heaven is assured. It's likely that the tale of Olikumi was meant as a final ending to the long cycle of Khmerbi's attempts to regain his throne. And from this point on, Khmerbi would be forced to accept that kingship in heaven had passed forever out of his lineage. Thus ends the Khmerbi cycle, the greatest Hurrian literature that still survives to this day. These tales, as has been seen already, would exert a great influence on the rest of the Near East, and even into classical Greece, but of course their main purpose was to bring the Hurrian people themselves closer to their gods. The many victories of Teshub were victories for the Hurrians, for they were always on his side, and Teshub was always on their side." And as the Mitanni kingdom helped the widely dispersed Hurrian people to unify and expand to become one of the great powers of the late Bronze Age, surely these tales were an inspiration for generations of young boys who wanted nothing more than to emulate the brave deeds of Teshub and his warrior allies. But though this is the greatest work of the Kumarbi cycle, we are not yet done with Hurrian myth there is one more tale, and one more aspect of Hurrian literature, that we need to explore. Ideas of philosophy, both political and moral, while not quite formalized on the level that the Greeks would devise, have been evolving over the course of a thousand years, ever since the ancient instructions of Shuripak were written a millennium ago in ancient Sumer. Not only have the ideas shifted a bit, the ways in which they are expressed has also developed in this time. So join us next time for a multi-part tale of wisdom in which good advice and political discussions will be dispensed in new and creative forms. Thank you for listening.